0: Hi, everyone, and thanks again for joining me for another one of my interviews on the podcast Gaudium at Spez.com. Gaudium at spes22.com. Uh, I'm very uh, happy today, very honored today to have as my guest, uh, Father Vincent Tuomi, uh from Ireland, who is uh, a former student of Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger. Well, he wasn't Cardinal then, but Joseph Ratzinger, uh, Pope Benedict, and uh, has also written books, on Pope Benedict Joseph Ratzinger. From here on, I won't keep saying Benedict Ratzinger, I'll just say Joseph Ratzinger uh, for for an ease of shorthand. And and so we're gonna be once again, focusing on Joseph Ratzinger, uh, the man and his theology. And Father Twomey just told me off screen that uh, it's very hard. Th- the more you know of Ratzinger, the more you know you don't know. And so it's hard to encapsulate his thought. Oh, boy, do I ever know that feeling since I did my doctoral dissertation on, on Source Fund Balthazar. <laughs> and if there's ever a case, too, of the more you know Balthazar, the less you know, really, of him, the, the more you know that you don't know very much. That That is so true. Also joining me once again, I'm very happy, as Dr. Roland Millare a miliare of, you know, of the John Paul II. What's what's this? Oh, gosh, I can't think Foundation. of
1: the Yeah, John, <laughs> John Paul II Foundation.
2: Foundation in Down in Houston. Yeah. He's
0: also a written book on, on Joseph Ratzinger. And so and he was the mm-hmm. one who actually put me in touch with Father Vincent. So I thought it was only appropriate that we have a, a three-way conversation here and, and not just a two-way, especially since both of these fine gentlemen are far, far more conversant with Ratzinger's theology than I am. Since I said, I'm a Balthazar scholar. But Father Twomey is a professor emeritus of moral theology at Maynooth, right? You were at Maynooth uh, for for many, many years, right? And you were a divine, you're a divine word priest. (laughs) Hey, just autobiographical, I almost joined the divine word missionaries as as a young seminarian, yes. I was growing up in the American Midwest in the state of Nebraska, Mm -hmm. and I was discerning a vocation, and there was a a, a divine word minor seminary in Iowa, in in the American Mm -hmm. Midwest at the time. I don't know if it still exists. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, The college is still there,
1: The college is still there, but no, uh, uh, as as a type of boarding school, really. Yeah, it was. Uh, Ah, okay,
0: okay. Uh, So I almost went there because I was curious about it, and I was interested in being a missionary, perhaps. You know, young and filled with all kinds of ideals. And so, then anyway, that's autobiographical, and and neither here nor there. But when I saw you were a Divine Word priest, I thought, oh, Divine Word keeps popping up in my life, and uh, and it's always been a pleasant and good experience. But anyway, let's let's begin with Father Vincent. Uh, and Father Vincent also. He's, he's, you've been in, uh, I think, Papua New Guinea, the Solomon Islands. You've then you were in Vienna, Austria, for many years. Yes, before
1: I came back to Ireland. Yeah. Yes. So you're yes, a man I, of the I, world. I, 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 not quite, no, say, join join the SVD and see the world, yeah. You become yeah. a divine missionary and you see the world, which is quite true, actually, yeah. You might do much for the world, but you will see the world at least.
0: <laughs> Very After good. my
1: doctorate, uh, I was sent to teach in the regional seminary in Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands. That was an extraordinary experience. Out of that experience, I was, then I was teaching sacraments and ecclesiology and Mariology, and it was my experience there of trying to understand what ritual meant, because I was dealing with people who were just straight out of the stone age, effectively, where rituals were at their purest. Um, and that led me to a whole new understanding of, of, of sacrament. Also, thanks to Joseph Ratzinger's few um, short essays on on, on the subject, uh, and ecclesiology. And then, of course, I came back after three years to teach dogma in in uh, St. G- our, our Hochschule, our college outside Vienna. Yeah. And then yeah. I was asked to come back to Ireland. So I fell from grace into sin, <laughs> from dogmatic <laughs> theology into. Moral theology, you yeah, know, which is a terrible true. fault. Yeah. Only yes, at the end, only at the end, I discover actually they're both about grace <laughs> <laughs> <Very> <laughs> and redemption. You know? Okay, so, so and you... then then I came back to teach moral theology, and I was asked to teach moral theology um, by one or two bishops who were anxious about the way things were going in the moral theology in Ireland. And I, I, I said to one of the bishops, "Look, I, I don't know much about theology. That's the best thing he said. You must start from the beginning." <laughs> so I spent most of my time trying to find out what is moral theology. Uh, uh, and recently, I've just been put together a long article, might be a book eventually, on Ratzinger's contribution to moral theology because it runs right through his whole his whole corpus. In actual fact, it has to be. Because yes, faith yes. is, a living faith is responding to the love of God. And at the core of his writings is the, is, is the, the, the revelation of God to his love, Deus Caracalist. Yeah? Yes, so yes. his encyclical as Pope Benedict's first encyclical, really sums up in many ways much of his theological endeavor, the first part in particular. Yes. Now you ask me, what is he like as a man? Yes, yes, because I think our viewers would be
0: interested to know you You got your doctorate under him, and so it would be interesting You know just what's he like as a human
1: being? I, I sum it up in a few words. Very humble, very courageous, and very sharp. <laughs> humble, courageous, sharp. Yes. yes, yes. An, an extraordinary memory. Quite an extraordinary man. And a man of in exquisite sensitivity to all that is true, good, and beautiful, yeah? especially yes, music. Yes. Oh, yes. Now, I I got to know him in 1971, when I went to Germany to study theology. I had hoped to study under um, Walter Kasper, primarily because he was practically unknown at the time. I didn't want to go to a, ve- a, known, a well-known theologian. But I ended up in, in, in our house, in Münster in Westphalia, Casper had moved to Tübingen, and then I said I perhaps I'd study under Rahner. But after a few weeks, after a few months, I became disillusioned with Rahner. And I remember a conversation I had with a former professor of dogmatic theology in Maynooth before I left for Germany, telling me about this young, promising theologian. He wasn't all that well known. One book of his had been printed, that we knew of, Introduction to Christianity. Yes, And he, had, he was... Ratzinger had been as a young theologian in 1969 at the Maynooth Summer School, which was an attempt to bring um, modern theology into Ireland. And he was very impressed with him. That is uh, Kevin McNamara, my former professor. And he said he had to leave Tübingen because he couldn't do work, he couldn't work there with the tension on the faculty. This has been falsely actually attributed to his tension with the students. He never had trouble with any students anywhere, God. and I've had this from his from my, my friends who were students in Tubingen that he was always respected by the students. Whenever there was a, a that was '68, was the time of the huge student revolution, and he himself was dean of the faculty at one stage. He was always got the respect whenever he spoke people stopped. He had established himself as a man of reason. So he, and I was told he had left Tubingen because he couldn't do any academic work. And he had gone to this new university in Bavaria, Regensburg. Regensburg, yes. And um, so when I got, and that, that he was happy to start there, he built a house and his sister was there. His brother was in charge of the, um, the um, boarding school that ran the Cathedral Choir School, th- over a thousand years old. He was the director of that and the main conductor. His sister was with him, so the whole family was there. He had bought a house outside the um, on the outskirts of the town in a little parish pentling, and he, he had his parents' um, graves um, remains re-embedded, re-interred in the local parish cemetery around the church. So, I remembered hearing when I, what would I do when I was in Munster was failure, oh, perhaps I would go to Ratzinger. Yes, so yes. I got an overnight train down from Re- from Munster to Regensburg, stepped out early in the morning in Regensburg. It was a cold winter's morning, a lot of slush around. It was January. got a taxi to Pentling and met the man. And the first impressions are always the most the lasting yeah. Yes. He was a simple man in a very simple house with a lovely uh, sister who was equally, she could be from any part of of the Bavarian woods where they originally came from. And the second thing I noticed was he listened to me. I've been writing an account actually of my reminiscences for for, for a, a, a periodical and I think listening is another word that sums up the man, yeah? He listens to what you have to do with great attention, yeah? And he grasps exactly what you're trying to get at. So, and he listens to all voices of reason, yeah? So no matter where they come from, whether they're atheists or whether they're uh, Protestant or whether they're anti-Catholic, doesn't matter. There's any scintilla of truth there, he grasps and appreciates, yeah? But his courage, as well, later I discovered, was 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 the flip side of his humility, because I said humility is the most significant um, characteristic, I would say, um, of Ratzinger. I tell you a, a little story about him uh, when he was Cardinal Prefect, and uh, he had he was I think he was Papal Legate to a Congress in South America. And on his way back, he was stopped over in, a, in, in America in a seminary. Came down for breakfast, and this young priest came in, didn't know who he was. And he said, Did you, where are you come from, South America? Oh, did you hear that fellow Ratzinger is down there? He's an awful fellow. And he gave out like mad about Ratzinger. And Ratzinger sat there, yes, that's, I'm sure that's true. <laughs> 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 finished his breakfast and went off, you know. <laughs> he has a wonderful. He has wonderful said, uh, uh, rather, you say, a dry wit. He has a very dry, a very often, very sharp wit, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. So so also, when I'm down to Ratzinger, I described this in my, my little book, uh, Benedict, the Conscience of Our Age, which I, I, I wrote uh, because of the terrible anti-Ratzinger, exactly, how oh, you've got it, the anti-Ratzinger um Attacks on him, especially in the British media, the Irish media as well. You know, and um, there's one chapter there, and it is because they were saying he was from Nazi to from Nazi to paparazzi. Right, the, right. And that, that was one of the cases. Yeah. So the the, uh, the chapter that I wrote, I wrote that chapter, you know, guilt by association in, in that book uh, to show the real story that he came from a family that was anti-Nazi to the end. Yeah? Oh, very called, much so. Yeah, extraordinary. And um, so I, 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 then I added the rest of it, and that's the book. But, but in 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 that book, I also describe how I attended one of the higher seminars, as they're called, of Karl Rahner on Christology. It was frustrating. No one had a chance to say anything. He talked and talked and talked. He was an oracle. One. A student would give a summary paper of the topic, and for about half an hour, and he wouldn't even sit down. He marched up and down behind us, and when the topic was over, he began, he began talking, talking, talking. Yeah? And his lectures were like the same, so there was no chance of dialogue. By way of contrast, in Ratzinger's seminars and colloquium, everyone had the freedom to speak. Yeah? And just to connect with the first point I wanted to make there, you know, even in the seminars with with, with the undergraduates who are just gradually trying to articulate their ideas and who are very often they see things that more mature students would not see. And he would let everybody speak on the topic for about half an hour or 20 minutes. And then he'd give a summary very briefly, brilliantly and said, Ah, Herr Schmidt, he said something. Her Schmidt himself? Did I? Yeah. What did I say? <laughs> it was really very important, and it's not been you did not discuss it. And then he would say what Herr Schmidt wanted to say. That's exactly what I wanted to say, but in <laughs> words that were quite superior, you know. And then yeah. he would let, let the conversation go, you know. So uh, th- this listening that I was talking about, he he. he I think that's part of that's part of his humility, you know. That, as you yeah. say, we don't own the truth; the truth owns us.
0: I just want to pause here, and yeah. I want to simply alert my the viewers and the listeners to this because some people will just be listening. Uh, I just feel so privileged right now to be having a conversation with somebody who actually knew both Carl Ratzinger and and I mean Carl uh, Rahner and Joseph Ratzinger back in the day. And I just want the the viewers and listeners to realize how privileged we are right now to, to hear a firsthand account of what it was like actually to be in class with Carl Rahner and what it was like to be in class and seminar with, with Joseph Rotzinger. There aren't very many people out there that can lay claim to what you what to what you are saying. And so this is really I, I think a privileged moment for me to be having. Uh, this wonderful conversation with you and these reminiscences of these of these two. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of Rahner's theology, but I mean, he's obviously a theological yes. giant and had profound insights into things and was a mover and a shaker in the church, and, and remains a very important theologian in the church. Um so yeah, that that's it's just fascinating. So what did you when to, let's move on then and and roland uh, i'm going to come to you in a second so be prepared to ask a question uh, whatever but, it might be let's what did you do your doctoral doctoral dissertation on father uh, under under joseph Rotzinger?
1: on the primacy of the bishop of rome in the 4th century that's the really in the in the writings of Eusebius of Caesarea and Athanasius of Alexandria very interesting. And oh, it yeah. happened, by, happened by accident. I, I, I intended to study. I want to do something on the fathers, and I was instructed to look at Athanasius, his pneumatology, his theology of the Holy Spirit. And I was working on that, and I attended one summer a, a big conference of of Orthodox Catholic theologians, mostly bishops, and big <laughs> theologians like Daniel Stan, Stan, Danielo, I think was his name. Um, from, from the various Orthodox churches and some uniats, as they were called as well. And it was about communio. And everyone was very polite and there were papers being read. And somebody happened to mention the role of the Bishop of Rome in the, in the union, the communio of the church. And there was an, out, an outcry, you know, of <laughs> protest. And as I said to somebody, I, I think it was the Archbishop of Tuam, McHale at the First Vatican Council, he was against defining if, if papal infallibility. So we don't need it; we suck it in with our mother's milk. <laughs> he said uh, what he said in the Vatican. Yeah. And to me, I was quite shocked, you know. And I'd read enough of Athanasius to realise that he had appealed to Rome uh, when he was being persecuted by the supporters of Arius. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, why did you go to Rome? Yeah. And that yeah, then yeah. led me to discover in, in, in Athanasius an understanding of the primacy of... It wasn't, a, as we understand primacy, it was a fledgling primacy with a real preeminence uh, rooted in the fact that he was the successor of St. Peter. Yeah, yeah. And um, and then I delivered this once at a paper in the colloquium. Ratzinger had about 30 doctoral and postdoctoral students, and he would see us whenever we needed to see him. But we also also, all had to uh, deliver a paper on our research, the state of our research, every so often to the colloquium, to the other members. Yeah, yeah. Now, that was an extraordinary experience as well, because you had every kind of topic from uh, the apostolic Fathers, Ignatius, uh, Irenaeus of Leon, uh, through um, uh, the Medievals, Augustine, of course, um, Athanasius, Eusebius, right down into the modern world, into Voodooism, for example, even, you know, for an, you, you're the extra, extraordinary spectrum of, of, uh, of, of Theses. And as well as that, you had, um, extraordinary <laughs> spectrum of views from what we would call right wing to left wing yeah? I don't yeah, like those, yeah. that terminology but they do say something yeah? and everybody had the freedom so when I read my paper my, what I discovered in Athanasius Rassinger said that's your thesis <laughs> so then I went to Oxford to write to finish it I, I, at that stage, my German was so good, my English had deteriorated. you see, And I wanted <laughs> to write it in English. so I went back to Oxford to write the introduction and conclusion. When I was there, I discovered quite by accident, the roots of what up to then was unknown, that is the um, the pro- the prominence of the petrine significance of the Bishop of Rome's position in the early church. Yeah? I discovered that in um, the early redaction of Eusebius's Church History, which goes went through four redactions, yeah, and I didn't do that redaction. I couldn't do it. That would be my my forte. But it had been done, and by Schwartz and, and Liqueur. and they had discovered, as it were, like in Scripture, going back to the you know to to the basic texts, Q set, source and all the rest of it, and you, you can actually isolate what uh, what uh, um, what Eusebius of Caesarea, when he sat down to write a church history, what notion of church did he have? And he structures his church history on the three main seas of of Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. They're all considered to be petrine petrine sees, and that was in. The early Eusebius, which is you know before written before 303, before the outbreak of the of the Great Persecution, and that of course is what, what I found had been re-echoed, was assumed by Athanasius. It wasn't; it didn't have to be explicit. It was assumed by everybody, you know. And Eusebius, of course, was writing uh, from the Eastern Church about the whole Church, not just the Eastern Church. Yeah? He, yeah, and yeah. then I discovered then his own theology. Mutated in the course of his redactions. And then after Nicaea, he became, uh, he he went to Nicaea accused of support for Arius. And he was, um, and he then accepted the Nicaean creed under the pressure from the emperor, effectively. He created, he compromised himself, effectively. And then he develops a a new theology, which we're all familiar with the imperial theology, where effectively Constantine, Becomes the head of the church, he takes the place of uh, what, what what the bishop of Rome, a successor of Peter, was. The new successor of Peter is Constantine, effectively. You know, so yeah. that was yeah. my thesis. Yeah. Well, Anyhow, Father yeah. Vincent is the uh,
2: yeah, is the uh, remind me, Father Vincent is the book your dissertation rather is going to be republished by Ignatius Press. Is that? Uh...
1: It, it's being prepared for publication. Yeah, it's rather massive. Yeah, I wrote two theses. So then I wrote the a thesis on Eusebius. And then I went back to Regensburg and rewrote my first thesis in the light of what, of what I discovered in my second thesis. So that took seven years. So eventually they wow. kicked me out and said, go off to Papua New Guinea and, and learn a bit something about reality. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's fantastic. What a story. And uh, uh, what, what, if-
1: what, 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 what? if I might just link it now to moral the theology and, and to Ratzinger, you see, um, what what really i was dealing with without knowing it is um the emergence of political theology uh, yes. where you know which is behind all every every um ideology effectively uh, marxism yes. Yes. um and it's also, of course, re- related to 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 Islam, the monasteries, the um, the danger of of monotheism. So, what actually I discovered when I in my own teaching moral theology, I, I eventually found my way and discovered what had went wrong, and began to move. I moved more and more into politics, and politics, of course. Is the origin of all moral, of all moral reflection? Yeah, yeah, Plato, yeah. yeah. Aristotle, you know, yeah, because Politics broad, being, broadly
0: defined, yes, and
1: broadly defined, yeah. It, it, you know, the point: is the living together with others in a structured society. Yeah, you know? right. Without with the tradition, etc. And um, what, what I discovered it, it was that you know the Western democracy and the Western tradition. Brilliantly now um, d- d- displayed, or at least presented by Tom Holland in his book Dominion. Uh, you've heard of that, I'm sure. Yes, i read of the book. Yes. Well, it's really worth worth uh, reading. It's called The Making of the Western Mind. Yeah. Oh, the Western Mind is the is a product of Latin Christianity. Yeah. And essential yes. to that is the tension between the, the spiritual and the temporal authorities. Yeah. Whereas yes. in, in Byzant- byzantine in Byzantium, they're, sym- they're they're together, they're one, the symphonia they call it, yeah. yeah. So yeah. democracy could never develop in the Byzantine world. Yeah? right so and so, right. and, and so um, one of the one of the big influences on my own thinking when i was when I was um trying to find my way in moral theology, the two big influences were, um, um, Alistair MacIntyre Oh, The yes. recovery of virtue as the context within which to think moral theology. We'll come back to that with Ratzinger later. Uh, and the other was um, uh, Eric Fergulin. Oh, Vogelin. yes. Of all his introduction to new science of politics, you know, mm-hmm. where he also has an interpretation of, of, of Eusebius, which is quite extraordinary. And there he shows that really behind the. Um, behind the the, uh, the the Western development is of course the separation of church and state so when you have two authorities both claiming your allegiance neither can claim your full allegiance and out of that arose the freedom that we call liberal democracy now that took centuries to happen you know but, right. but what I discovered you see in in in, uh, in my own little thesis, was that uh, you? You have the the difference between a, a a church which is built on the confession of one man, yeah, Conf- confession of Peter. You are Peter yeah. and on this yeah. and You you yeah. are Christ's yeah. Son, living God. You know, and the synodal, the the, the communal notion. Now, in the fourth century, the emperor who had the power manipulated synods as you can. You can manipulate groups. You can't manipulate an individual, so Athanasius couldn't be manipulated. Hilary of Poitiers couldn't be manipulated. Yeah, so the, the whole nature of the church is quite different in the Latin sphere, and um, in you know I, I discovered in one of Athanasius's letters, his own defence, really, "History of the Arians" is called "Historia Arianorum." He actually uh, quotes a letter by Osius of Cordoba, who would have may have been the president of the Council of Nicaea. Um, he certainly was the great man of, at Nicaea from Cordom in Spain, the great supporter of Athanasius when he was being persecuted by Constantine's son, Constantius II. Um, and he writes to the II, when he himself has been exiled for supporting Athanasius, remember, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. Now that distinction between God and Caesar, Ratzinger himself uses as the basis of his own theology of political life. Yeah? Okay. It, it becomes then, the, the um, it, it evolves then, it, it, it's behind the Western Latin um, development of, um, of political life. Yeah? So that's my doctoral thesis. Yeah?
0: Well, it's fantastic. And uh, I'm really, really happy to hear that Ignatius Press is going to publish that.
1: No, 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 no. no it's uh, it's Scott Hahn's press. The, um, oh, okay. Oh, Emmaus. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, Emmaus okay. Press, not Ignatius yeah. Press. I'm sorry. Emmaus Press. Oh, Scott Hahn. Well, good for him. Good on, Scott, for uh, for, for doing that, because it sounds... Absolutely fascinating and interesting, Roland. Did you did you have a question to, to go with to, with that? Yeah. The,
2: well, I mean, you know, after this uh, this disc- brilliant discourse, really, I've got all kinds of things, you know, swimming yeah. in my head, Father Vincent. Um, I mean, so there are a couple of things. I mean, you 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 spoke of the danger of mon- monotheism. It made me think of Eric Peterson. I mean, so the, I was going to bring that is, up. I mean,
0: Thank you. Yes. Yeah.
2: I mean, to what to what degree did Eric Peterson? influence Ratzinger? And then the same question would apply to Vogelin. I mean, I understand that Vogelin uh, wrote a letter to Ratzinger, but is there any other influence, you know, between, between? so Peterson on the one hand, Vogelin on the other, you know, with, with Ratzinger.
1: Great question. Certain, run, r- r- very good, thank you very much. Um, Eric F- uh, Peterson, first of all, it was a huge influence on my own thinking. his monotheism as a political problem. Yeah? That I found absolutely fascinating. But also Ratzinger quotes him. Now, to what extent I wouldn't be able to say offhand, but he certainly knew and respected um, Paterson. Yeah? As you know from your own thesis, the whole question of orientation of the church, um, Ratzinger's ideas go back to Eric Paterson. Yeah? So he would have had a great knowledge of Paterson. But where he, and and of course he is also aware of you know the political implications of of a trinitarian versus a, a unitarian, shall we say, um, theology. Yeah? Yeah. So yeah. Um, now, interesting, I discovered myself when I was doing some research um, um, in in Rome in the August the um, Goethe's Gesellschaft Library in, in, in Campo Sancto, and I found, quite on a book by a woman, knockwise, I think was her name, a biography of Eric Paterson. And Eric Paterson wrote that biography, that, that article, according to this, uh, this biography, big, thick biography, um, to counteract the, the theology that was emer- emerging in Maria Lach, including Odo Cassel's, mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. the lit- liturgical movement, which actually... Wow them open to the Third Reich.
2: Mm.
1: Now, with regard to you ask about Eric uh, Eric Foglen. um Eric Furlan himself admits that what he is giving is a summary of other works that are doing. He doesn't actually give the to my to, to my memory. Now I may be wrong, but my memory serves me right. He doesn't actually say who these are. Bukensky was one of the men he mentions, I think, but very few. I can't remember if he mentions Peterson, but he certainly repeats Peterson. He certainly, uh, you know, essentially says the same thing as Peterson, yeah? That with the triumph of the Trinitarian uh, theology at the end of the fourth century in Constantinople, that was the end of political theology in the early church. What, what what rather frightened me, of course, was the realization that in Maria Lach, uh, the whole community there, Abbott, were open to Hitler. Yes, you know. Yes, and, and that brings yeah. us back to to and and of course that that's one of the, as you know from Eric Vogel and one of his theses, that actually these things are they're not just past tense. We live in the uh, in in the influence of the. Um, you know, a movement that goes back to Giacomo Fiore, you know, a, trans, trans, a, a transformation of history into into a, into a, into a in, an imminent movement within his, trans, transformation of the eschaton into the imminentization in history, you know. Yeah. And so we, in now well, we're rest living rest in the age of the spirit. It was some, exactly, yes. Well, what spirit, you would say, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We know the spirit, yeah. Yeah, but to, to, to go back to your, your other question there, um, Ronald, about um, Ratzinger. Um, yes, Ratzinger uh, actually was in correspondence with uh, with uh, Eric Fögelman, yeah? And I think it's the case of two minds, great minds think alike. I'm not sure, I think he quotes them once or twice. Eric Peterson, I know, Gave him a present of his volumes, a German translation of the Order and History, a German a translation of that into German, and which Ratzinger uh, Pope Benedict actually gave. He said, "I'm not going to read it now. My, you know, you read it, So he he gave, he gave it to me. You know, he sent me the, the copies, which I have in my library up there. Yeah? <laughs> so, and you know, I, 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 I you know, I, I do think there is a lot of truth in the. In the old saying that great minds think alike. Yeah? I'll give Absolutely. you another
2: example. Yeah,
1: so
2: Go ahead, Roland. No, that, Roland, you go yeah, this, ahead. This is a question that that Larry has has posed uh, again, again, and, and rightfully so. Ratzinger, would you characterize him as a post-liberal thinker or a non-liberal thinker? Where Where do you situate him in relationship to liberalism or neoliberalism?
1: Uh, well, these are categories that are very much alive in the American world at the moment, you know. Uh, and I'm not as familiar with them, quite frankly. So I would find it hard. I find it hard to pigeonhole Ratzinger into any topic. Yeah? Uh, he appreciates liberal democracy, you know, he appreciates what the Enlightenment. Did, for example, you know the Enlightenment? Himself, himself, "Itself, as he says, is as and as Tom Holland says, is a product of, of, of Latin Christianity, yeah, and it emerged when Latin Christianity lost its roots by becoming a state religion." Yeah? So after the after the thirty, 30 years war, the peace of Westphalia, cuius regio regio Est Religio. Um, that you, whatever, whoever the, the the ruler, wherever the monarch uh, believed, that became state religion. Yeah? Now, that of course goes against the whole essence of Christian uh, understanding of relation between the church and the political world it lives in. Give to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is what is God. That there is a distinction there there can't be ever be a, a merger of both, you know? When they do, you you have, as you had, and that has happened over and over again. It happened in Anglicanism, in, in, in England with the Reformation. It happened to a certain extent, of course, in Germany as well. But it happened also in the, uh, in, in the Catholic world, yeah? With throne and altar becoming one, yeah? And when that happens, it is bad both for religion and for the state. And the enlightenment reaction again, and you had the wars of religion. They perhaps were the the worst of all before that compromise was was established at Westphalia. Then you had the the, the enlightenment he, he sees in terms of politics as the healthy reaction against this Union of church and state, yeah? and the re-establishment of politics on a rational basis. Yeah? Now, if you ask me, what is the essence of Ratzinger's understanding of politics? I would say politics is the realm of prudential judgment.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. in a word, yeah, um, and it's the realm, it's the, it's the, it's where it's the art of the politics, the art of the possible. No, Actually, it true. seems like
2: in, in uh, yeah it seems like in um, space uh, maybe it's in space Alve where he 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 says that politics is about ethics and not eschatology
1: exactly because
2: right? that's the that's the constant problem we, we we seem to be up against that that people reduce right. politics to to the eschaton right to Vogel's exactly. you know immunization of the eschaton
1: yes this one of the countries of modernity is the attempt to establish a perfect society on earth yeah and he yeah. goes back to say, yeah. the fact is that there, there are theological issues involved here. We are essentially imperfect. We'll never have a perfect society. We have to live with imperfection. Yeah? May I just tell a story of that as well? I, I used to drive Ratzinger around. We can go back to Ratzinger as a man later if you wish, but I, 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 I had to finance my, my, my stay because the state in America paid for my, my university um, fees. But, but uh, I had to earn some money, so I, I was doing chaplaincy uh, for a convent and also was helping out in a parish uh, nearby. So I had a car at my disposal because from the diocese, because both were outside the city of, of Regensburg. So occasionally Ratzinger never rode more than a bicycle, by the way. He never, he never drove a car. And... Um, he always had drawn very, very simply. He was the bag. You think he was going to ask for a handout? Actually, the next time, you know. But, yeah. um, <laughs> so occasionally, he he'd ask me to drive him here, there, and everywhere. And um, anyhow, one day in the car, I was still struggling. Back now, after my discovery in, in Oxford, I was back in Regensburg, rewriting my, my I had a great time, by the way, because everything flowed into, into it, it, it. All the all the jigsaw puzzles came together, pieces came together. And he said, um, how's the thesis? I said, well, now I've got that to do and that to do. He said, have the courage to leave gaps. Mm-hmm. I interpret that as have the courage to be imperfect. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Don't and make that the, mark, perfect the enemy oh, of the good, yes.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and most of his works were never completed. Yeah. Just actually, to see connect,
2: actually connect, connected to that, and you see this in Balthazar, the, the whole notion of Pascanze in fragment, right? Like the the hole in the in the yep. fragment or the in the, yes. the could you, could, yeah yeah could you could you comment on that well I mean, before I, we I'm, go there
0: i mean in, in balthazar since i'm a balthazar scholar i mean yeah fragment is, is actually very tied up with balthazar's theology of history Uh, as well. In fact, uh, the the German title of the book, when it's in English, is translated as Man in History or or something along those lines. Yeah, but the German is Das Ganz im Fragment. And so there would be, I think, some resonance in Ratzinger, because Ratzinger, too, uh, was concerned with the theology of history. Uh, And in other words, the historical mediation mediation of being is so important in
1: Ratzinger. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, the... the, uh, um you, you've asked uh, a question with huge ramifications may i just begin with a little incident i i, I also I, I told you about driving a car rasker once asked me would i collect um hansels from Balzer from the station he'll come to yes, Regensburg yes. to give a talk you know <laughs> so, so i did and um yeah. and it was early in the afternoon and we drove down to Vertin the Donau, a little village on the on the Danube. Went for a walk for about an hour, and both of these great men were discussing all the various books and all the various thoughts and individuals. I felt so small, you know, but it was a wonderful experience. <laughs> and uh, anyhow, yeah. So afterwards, this by the way, this in fragment. Now Ratzinger and Balthazar, of course, were were, you know, thought basically in the same way but in, in, in their approach is quite different as you know yeah mm-hmm. Ratzinger Balthasar was like Michelangelo you know or Rembrandt huge big um, uh, canvas. Uh, yeah. canvas yeah yeah Ratzinger is more like Picasso just a few sketches here and there you know and you fit in the rest yeah? so that, that's how I would describe him but um, the historicity of being, of course, is one of the major themes running through his whole, his whole um, yeah, uh, theology. Yeah. But understood, understood as the fact that the human person is in, inserted into a particular um, uh, history uh, through his language and his culture. So we actually absorb the history is part of us. He doesn't believe in history as some kind of linear development where you know, um, in terms of Hegel or in terms of of Fiore, there's somehow other're we're, we're, we're growing towards a greater a greater a more perfect future. The only future we are growing towards our own future as individuals and as a community, which is union with God in Christ, yeah and, and is the and that of course, is also historical. That my historic history is what is what is made by human decisions. So my human decisions are my historicity, if you wish, yeah? But they those decisions are made within the whole compass of the culture which I absorb from my with my mother's milk, literally. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. And, and for, 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 for Ratzinger that, that is extremely important too in terms of denying any kind of attempt to create a perfect society because we all begin at, 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 at null, point null, when we're born, practically. But that null point is already inserted into a whole sea in which we are swimming. And we emerge out of that, as it were, in the course of, of allowing God to work in us, to transform us. And he also, when he's talking about um, natural law, for example, part of his moral theology, his his... Uh, his understanding of that is quite fascinating um it goes back really for him theologically to the fact that we're all created in the image and likeness of god
2: you know? right
1: right but therefore the um, what god wants of us is already in our hearts you know and he quotes um digest uh, uh, um, which begins with the natural law is give unto us as you as the golden rule you know so written right. into our hearts is the knowledge of what we should do. Yeah. Uh, central to Ratzinger's moral theology is his notion of conscience, his his recovery of the medieval notion of synderesis, of the conscious, the the sensorium for transcendence, Fugger would say, that, that capacity for truth which is given to us. Yeah, but it's it, it's it's layer. It's actually covered with layers of as it were, um, pollution through history. So um, the, the, it, that's why revelation was needed to break through, to actually release the truth that is in us. So we needed the Ten Commandments because we know what they are within us. Yeah. As a result of that, but so do all the religions of the world are are, are 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 described by Ratzinger as actually means of actually coming to the truth of who we are, what we should do, how we should behave. Yeah, And here he quotes C.S. Lewis's wonderful little essay, The Abolition of Man. Great book. Which, which is a wonderful book, as you know. Uh, Lewis shows how uh, written... Um, just perhaps some of your listeners mightn't might be aware of this, but it was written in the middle of the Second World War, and C.S. Lewis was 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 conscious that what was happening in uh, in education in England was far more destructive of humankind than the war that was happening in Europe at the time.
0: Fascinating. And that was
1: yeah. relative relativism. The Little Green Book he
0: mentions at the beginning of the abolition of man, exactly, which is. A popular and, uh, education book,
1: then. Yes. It's on literature. It's on literature. Yeah. On aesthetics. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. So say, so there is nothing aesthetics. No, there is no, no objectivity in aesthetics. It's what you actually feel. Yeah. So yeah. everything is yeah. reduced to your feelings. Yeah. And then uh, Ratzinger then, in, in one of his contributions to moral theology, talks about the um, the fact that today the the evidence of uh, of morality is no longer co- we not we moderns. No, long, no longer appreciate morality for what it is because it's lost its, its spontaneous evidence that was known to all the peoples of the world yeah, because it was written into our being and that he calls primordial conscience. Yeah. So, so the historicity of man is essentially ambiguous, if you wish, yeah. Yeah. But man, yeah. by his nature, trans- because he's got this capacity, again, using Foglin's term, this sensorium for transcendence, he can rise out of this and reach the truth. Therefore, he's not totally conditioned by history.
0: To what extent would Ratzinger say that, uh, you mentioned earlier that revelation was necessary in order to sort of break through uh, yes. some of some of the, the crud that had crusted over that moral sense, well, segueing now to our to our modern situation where Ratzinger has spoken of the dictatorship of relativism, where he has spoken of the eclipse of God in our culture. Uh, I'm, I, I'm remembering uh, a Balthazar in Theodrama 4, when he's talking about apocalypse in the book of Revelation, he talks about how modernity is characterized by an almost complete attenuation, a thinning out of man's uh, moral and religious sense, that natural thirst for God, that natural sense of right and wrong, to the point where Balthazar says uh, that it's almost been completely occluded. And it seems to me there's, there there are affinities in Ratzinger's thinking of modernity that are very close to that Balthazarian analysis, that our moral awareness today uh, has been has been grounded now in an e- in, a- in an eclipse of god that is deeply problematic would you would you say that's that's true in his thinking
1: i think that's absolutely true and a lot of his work in politics and and, and, and morality is trying to as we're outline the genealogy of that situation yes you know showing how what he calls the closing of the the self-limitation of reason Begins with Bacon, begins with the with scientism, you know, when all of a sudden, you know, we limit um, our understanding of reality to what we can observe to the empirical world. And therefore, and gradually, God is excluded, not intentionally, just forgotten, as it were. Yeah? So a, a lot of his work is, I'm, I'm just trying to look for a, um, if, if I might just, uh, I was just looking or two things before I came in just to refresh my own mind. About um, anyhow, I can't find it. But <clears throat> if I might just go back. Take to your that. time, Father. Take
0: your time. No, no, I, I, I'm just
1: trying to to, to to get you up again. Yeah, no. <clears throat> the okay. um, he, he 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 talks about one, one of the roots of it, of course, as he describes it, is um, the the. the uh, in this Est, for example he sums it up um a false understanding of uh, of uh, love as simply uh, sorry of of, uh, of, rea- of of reality as being totally corrupt lutheranism yeah and at its at its most extreme yeah that leads yeah, yeah. to a, to a, to a skepticism okay you know, if okay. you can't know god if you can't know his will if you're totally corrupt everything has to come from outside you know we that leads to a skepticism so so he he, uh, he 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 goes in several of his writings now he, he goes back to trace the various origins of the this uh, death of god to put it that way that actually is marks marks our, our, our era he also says there is no hope for humanity if we don't discover and reassert the primacy of God in our own lives. Right, right. right. That can't be done theoretically. It's just we lived. And that's where, of course, the, the uh, for him, um, liturgy is so important. Yeah.
0: So vitally important. But I want to. where we encounter okay. the. So the, the, the to, bring it, to bring it back to uh, Roland's question earlier about post liberalism. Uh, in, the, in, in this modern American context, there are many sort of resurgent American Catholic voices arguing for a kind of integralism, either a sort of hard or soft political integralism, uh, and, it, and it's a direct response to precisely this eclipse of God in the narrative. So that brings me to a, a question you said earlier in your in your talk here. Uh, that there's a distinction made between the Latin West and Byzantium, whereas in Byzantium, the political and religious realms were more fused together, whereas in the West there was this distinction that was made. But I was, I'm wondering now in the light of what eventually that distinction between church and state becomes. It becomes a bifurcation, a real separation, which also involves a separation of reason, a separation of nature and grace, the rise of secularism. I'm wondering if Ratzinger doesn't write something somewhere where he, in a sense, realizes, therefore, that the Western approach doesn't carry with it a certain negative negative baggage. I mean, that there, just as there's an inherent danger in Byzantium towards a kind of Cesaro-Papist sort of integration of the two, does not the West run the risk as well of precisely the separation that we see?
1: Oh, yes, he would agree with that. I mean, to say he, um, what we're dealing with in the West are heretical understandings of the Western uh, uh, Western Christianity yeah? yes and yeah. um, but at the root of them all is something you talk about Western uh, about American um attempts now to find a new way beyond liberalism etc um I think Raskin said that any kind of attempt to have an ism in politics is actually wrong that yeah, because politics is the realm of the possible. It's the practical reason. Yeah? It's as, as Roland pointed out, it's ethics. It's the, it's, yeah? He says, at one stage, there has to be a commonly accepted morality that is not man-made. This is where God comes in, you know? But it's a given by God. Now, in one of his most extraordinary uh, articles, if I might just... Uh, this book, I think, is I would recommend... Very much. Oh, I too. have that book. Yeah. Well, the third part is about politics, yeah? and in it, yeah, he has yeah. an essay called "The a Christian Orientation in a Pluralist Democracy." Question mark. Yeah? And what is the how? how, how and, and there, there he goes into um, you know the the um, also the negativity, what, what the danger that that um, religion, Christianity, can be for politics. So, you know, and as he says, as he said in his talk in Munich with Habermas, his dialogue with Habermas, there are pathologies of reason, but there are also pathologies of religion. Yeah? Now, one of the pathologies of religion is to, is, to, is, to, uh, is to try and find solutions to practical problems from ideological basis. Yeah. So be it liberalism or neoliberalism, you know. Once you once you go down that road, once you begin judging things in terms of of isms, then you have lost root. You know, the question is: Is it right or wrong? Is it you know? The political yeah. politics is about the possible: how to improve, not create a protect world. This is where the the uh, imperfection of, of of our present political situation is so important. We accept that imperfection, but we move towards improving it. Yeah? And that can, we have to, well, we have to have a criterion, and that is was the topic as you as you remember in his wonderful uh, speech to the Bundestag
2: mm-hmm. in
1: oh, yeah. Parliament there, yeah. I was in Berlin for the time, unfortunately I wasn't able to get into the Bundestag, but I was watching it on in, in the VQ stadium, the Olympia Stadium um, and it was just like being there. and it was an extraordinary talk, as you know and um, but at the core of it is he's trying to recover what is justice you know that society without justice, quoting uh, quoting um, Augustine is a, a band of robbers, yeah. So where does justice come from yeah and he goes on really to to talk about you know, going starting with scripture as usual Solomon's prayer for for uh, for prudence for for, just, for inspiration for wisdom you know where is justice going to come from if there isn't something beyond the empirical world and he talks about we're living in a world like in a bunker with everything is artificial we, we've we've excluded the light of God so he said break open the bunker and because the objectivity that we need is something that is given something that is echoed in all the great wisdom traditions of of, of humanity it's summed up in the ten commandments yeah and that is what the church has to offer ultimately is not a not a policy but simply a, a a a framework coordinates within which within which people can make practical decisions yeah just the framework.
0: Uh, so, so it's another way of saying it seems to me that uh, whatever political construction you come up with, that it, it's it, it's going to be downstream of culture, uh, not not upstream of culture, and it's, and and culture then is going. The, the task of the church is going to be not so much interacting in a direct way with the state as it is forming the cultus of culture in liturgy and ethics. Uh, Absolutely theology, and so on. And, and that way it has this sort of indirect, this indirect leavening of the political structures on that prudential level.
1: Absolutely. <clears throat> what Ressinger's theology of politics really comes down to is the privacy of the individual person and community. Yeah? Very good. Person yes. in community yeah? And one man, one woman, who is living according to his or her conscience transforms the world yeah there's a great, you, you're probably very familiar with uh, christopher dawson one of my yes. early my early masters when i was trying to figure my way in moral theology and he said that one of his little books written around the 40s i think it only takes one christian to change the world mm-hmm. that's fascinating
2: yeah and no, there's, and there's and those essays i think they're published by catholic university on uh, basically the relationship between christianity and culture i mean he he oh, yes. speaks about that that theme I mean with respect to history you you have no idea who that one one person may be and I mean in church history exactly. plays out again and again right it's one religious sister I mean in this case uh, mother teresa who hears that call within a call and that that transforms the world or whether it's exactly. st. jerome or st. francis it just takes takes the one um, exactly. and i think you see that you see that in in, in ratzinger and benedict right the this theology of saints it all culminates really you know, unlike modernity, which is about progress, progress towards what? I don't know. I mean, with respect to Christianity, it's the a progress that's oriented towards towards holiness, towards towards sanctity,
1: sanctification. Absolutely, yeah. No, that's you. You, you fit the the, hail, the the nail on the head. This is why, of course, um, liturgy also has a political significance, yeah, because that they is what gives people right the, the power to actually overcome the world because they have, they're sharing Christ's death and resurrection by which he has overcome the world. Yeah. And then Esau says, go out and transform the world by being who you are. Right. Now, there yeah. is a need for political parties and all the rest of it. But by the way, I, I was talking about the American situation. I, I, I'm hesitant to talk about anything happening in America because I'm very much aware from my little time in America, but you know how different it is to Europe. Now, Ireland is closer to America than most European countries are because uh, of our historical uh, contacts and English language in particular. But uh, I was um, coming back from a meeting of the Fellowship of Catholic Scholars in Rhode Island, um, in New York University, in, 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 in New York uh, Terminal, and I picked up Time magazine. There was an article there, I think it was by Ken Woodward, but I'm not too sure, an article by one of these. Top um, Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, journalists on politics in America, and it said politics in America is still influenced by Puritanism, and Puritanism is all black and white, you know. Yeah, and that is Gnosticism That, by the way, is one of the theses of Eric Fogelin as well and Ratzinger. You know that the we have never lost the influence of of, of, uh, of Gnosticism, which is which is. False certainties, creating false certainties and answers to the life's problems. But the, the this, um, as I said, for Ratzinger, and for Aristotle, but also for Thomas Aquinas, uh, politics is a practical solving of problems to help people yes. and society yes. to flourish, so that virtue can can people can can become fully human. In society, that's another thing we have to talk about. Perhaps later, the the, the need to recover an understanding of, of of morality in terms of virtue, not in terms of legalism and in terms of of act, you know, casuistry of various kinds. But the 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 the, the transformation of, of the world, um, you know, is something that actually um, can actually, uh, you know, is something that is our great contribution to the world, primarily in terms of the church's contribution. I've gone off, slightly distracted myself there by another thought that came to me. But um, the Christopher Dawson, um, oh yes. The other thing about about the historicity, I might might come back to the question of the historicity. uh, And that is uh, the extraordinary thing about um, goodness, beauty, and truth, about the saints, holiness, about art, and about the great true uh, uh, writers, is that in a sense they are all products of a particular history, and yet they transcend history. Yeah. So that even yeah. today they speak to us. Yeah, yeah. I think that's extremely important. Yeah. Anyhow, to to, to get back to the to to the Gnosticism, um, you know, unfortunately it would seem in America at the moment that 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 there, you know, people can't meet. To kind of solve problems, it becomes, you know, um, it, you, it, he's my enemy. He's, he's not just wrong. He's my enemy. He must be liquidated. That's another thing uh, uh, Eric Furlong points out that uh, in the twentieth century, wars were no longer fought to be won, but to liquidate, liquidate the enemy. The so there. I, I think so that there, there are all kinds of uh, of interesting, you know, practical Oh, oh, along, oh, yeah,
0: oh. along those lines, you know, uh, I, I believe it was G.K. Chesterton who once described America as a nation with the soul of a church, uh, and, and to sort of by that he meant that since we don't have an established religion in America, uh, in many, many ways that Puritan soul at the heart of America invested our governmental electoral processes with an almost messianic quality to them, which then spills over into the doctrine of American exceptionalism, American expansionism, manifest destiny, as we Americans call it, our, our right to move from one shore to the other as an imperial power. Uh, and and so, yes, I, I think what is lost so often in the American context is precisely the very limited prudential nature of government. I mean, you go back really to the American founding fathers, and we can debate all kinds of things about their constructions, but there does seem to have been an agreement, at least in the American founding, that government should be limited, extremely limited, and limited okay. to the realm of, of prudential, prudential yeah. decisions, but it has now morphed into this hegemony. Uh, uh, I guess that's the best word for it, an almost totalitarian coming together of technology, capitalism, the national security state, American exceptionalism, and its goal is to liquidate all, all not necessarily kill, but to nullify all app- opposition.
1: Yes, and we're going down the same path in Europe, I think, you know? Yes. Um, it's interesting this idea of predestination, this whole Calvinistic notion, how prevalent it is um, or even in Ireland, we had the idea. God help us! We were also a chosen people. Yeah. You know, yes. One of the one, one I think one of the reason why the Jews were so attacked was that uh, they are the only chosen people. Yeah. We're not. True. Yeah. We've we, been. We're not, we're, we're Gentiles, we're pagans, we've been drafted into, um, um, onto the vine, you know, we've been, uh, what is it, um, drafted onto the true vine, which is Israel, you know, and every other country that makes uh, uh, any claims to be the, the chosen people. You have it in England as well, you have it in France, you have it in Spain, you know, yeah, and yeah, they, yeah. they end up then trying to conquer the world,
2: yeah.
0: Yes. You yes, know? absolutely, and uh, yeah. I think it's it's a dynamic that is sadly affecting the United States today. But I, I don't necessarily want to want to no. get no. Bog, bogged not, down no. in that. I am reminded, I'm not, off- I'm
1: not only bogged down; I'm completely out of my depth. <laughs> yeah.
0: I, I am reminded that off camera, I was mentioning to you, I was taught Greek uh, in seminary yes. by, uh, by a, a divine word priest, Father Cornelius Holly from County Cork. Yes. And he knew a lot, uh, a lot of the seminarians that were there were from the, the American Midwest, especially the state of Nebraska, like myself. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, I remember him flipping his chalk in the air. And he says, no, pardon my bad Irish accent. And he says, yeah, you Nebraskans are a lot like us Irish. You love where you're from and you can't wait to get the hell out of it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, that has no
0: bearing on our, on our conversation. But when you were talking about how the but, Irish did- too... Have yeah, a sense did, of did,
1: exceptionalism. Yeah, yeah. But uh, which is which is wonderfully ironic, you know. But anyhow, yeah, yeah. but we have to be able to laugh at ourselves as as Father did, you know, to be wonderful. And we do, we do laugh at ourselves. You no, know, I, I think um you know, one of the lessons I would learn from Ratzinger's theology of politics is, you know, to accept the goodness that is there, you know. We're always yeah, criticizing. Yeah. You know, and we are demanding more of the government than they can ever, uh, you know, help, because we have also given up our own personal responsibility for our own for our own future. Yeah, and I think that that, that goes back to uh, to um, you know to, to the uh, ultimate question of the absence of God. You know,
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: But because yes, we... We're trying to get some substitutes. We want to perfect, we want to happiness, we want yeah. everything yeah. to go right. It can't go right, you know? Yeah, this because next that's beautiful the thing. Yeah. So I want to come back to, and Roland
0: can jump in here too with the time we have left, which is probably about 15 more minutes or so, or we can go longer. But, um, the, uh, the You brought the issue up earlier of, of a reform of moral theology with a recovery yes. of the concept of virtue, which I think is very important, because I think it has a direct bearing on so many problems that we see in the church today with regard to this debate between a, a more virtue-centered moral theology versus a more legalistic, forensic understanding of moral theology, and um, and, and it seems as if sometimes virtue, the virtue approach is co-opted by the proportionalists in many ways, uh, and, and then the, the forensic side of it is co-opted by the Thomists or whatever. So we're, we're sort of at this kind of impasse, and it doesn't seem to me that the, the whole concept of, of a virtue approach, and I think this would be Rotzinger's approach, Pinker's approach, is being paid enough attention to.
1: No, and the reason is that the roots of our dilemma uh, um, today are of our are relativism and proportionalism and the moral confusion—they are so deeply historically rooted. You know, um, going back ultimately to, uh, as Pinkers points out, uh, Ratzinger said to William William of Ockham nominalism, and um, Ratzinger in his speech in Regensburg talks about John John Scotus. You know, so where where the will takes precedence over the intellect. Yeah. yeah. So Raskin is yeah. always talking, and uh, just I think we have to we have to be aware as as with the liturgy, we're in, we're in a transition period at the moment. Yeah. Um. The when Raskin himself recalls recalls that before the council, Second Vatican Council, the uh, Roman Dicastery, I think it was the Holy Office, drew up uh, a document on the liturgy that was to be uh, uh, approved by the Council. It was rejected out of hand, rightly so, because it was out of touch with. It was casuistry at its most at its purest, you know. Yeah, and as he, to quote him, it was three, you know, three feet above reality. You know, they were <laughs> they they they, they they'd, 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 they'd sol- solved all problems. You know? <laughs> No, it was really, yeah. And of course, it had lost touch with scripture, is what he called it, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And he, he himself, I don't think, quite fully re- realised he himself was going towards what I would call understanding of virtue. But he doesn't actually. He, he does accept uh, some of uh, Pieper's work, wonderful work on virtue. He, he comments on that. I don't, and I, I gave, I gave one of the talks to the Schule Christ. Um, one actually on this question, he himself was part uh, discusses the question of moral theology, and uh, um, when he, when he was chairman of the International Theological Commission, and the divisions were so crass and so difficult to reconcile, he himself I don't think found could find a, a solution, you know, and um, as McIntyre points out in that extraordinary book After Virtue, uh, what, what happened was over. the period of a few hundred years, this whole wonderful synthesis that was summed up by Thomas Aquinas, um, the medievals, all the medievals, based on an understanding of of, uh, morality and human behavior in terms of acquiring virtues to behave spontaneously, to do what is good and true. Um, it, over centuries, that it was a slow motion collapse, and all that is left are are fragments all over the place. Yeah. And it's like he, uh, um, I think um, McIntyre has this wonderful comparison with, you know, if the um, and the environment, the Greens today decided, you know, in uh, science is the root of all is destroying the destroying the 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 the, uh, the globe. Let's blow up all the all the um, the laboratories and destroy all the all the books of on science, and then a few centuries later, people found scraps of these books and tried to rebuild the synthesis of science. That's what you got in theology. Yeah. Dif- o- over yeah. the years, over the centuries, bi- people building synthesis, building moral, um, you know, uh, um, synthesis or systems on fractions of. The original synthesis, you know, yeah. and that is yeah. that is seeped into our whole culture that can't be overcome in a course of moral theology or a reading a book or anything like that. It takes time, and that is and it will because truth always triumphs in the end, you know. And this understanding of, uh, of morality uh, and the place of the law within it, you know, uh, because they are not cont- there is a place for casuistry as well. Uh, if you understand its limitations but and the law of course is the ultimately the, the moral law uh, and there's also canon law they all have their rule. but the the Nebraska uh, himself talks about the need for people to actually grow into to respond to God's love it all begins with grace, responding to 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 God's call in our hearts and the power he gives us to actually respond to him. And the church is there as a kind of a, a midwife drawing out the best of us and above all nourishing us as we grow into um, into the discipleship of Christ. You know?
0: And it doesn't help the crisis in our culture with no. regard to this this fractiousness when the, the church internally is just as fractious on, on these issues.
1: No. And... Um, <laughs> Again, yeah. it, it just takes time. I mean, so look, look how long it took to define uh, the Trinity and Christology. You know, hundreds of years, and with, oh. with, with, with geniuses working on them. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. so I, I think um, you know the, I, I'm you know full of of, of 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 true hope. I think that is the goodness of humanity and the power of God working in the Church oh, yeah. and in the heart in the hearts of young people. Now, I read something recently about America, actually, which really cheered me up, that um, the younger clergy now tend to be much more, in, you know, much more um, uh, orthodox and wanting to be orthodox uh, than than previously. And that, of course, means that things will get through, you know. Well, actually, that uh,
2: you know, to that, to that point, I was... Um to give a, a lecture on, on Ratzinger at the University of Dallas and it's a Friday afternoon I, I'm thinking there's just going to be 10 10 kids at best Um, yeah. you know my host expected 20 but they were 80 plus wow. young people and there were 40 plus seminarians out of the the 50 something there uh, and and they were all very much there not because of me um, that they, they were there because of Ratzinger Benedict they were they were interested in hearing about not the liturgy, so there are these pockets of, of hope. But you know, to that essay from a faith and, and future, I think Ratzinger's point is uh, very sobering. Or should be sobering for us that the church will uh, be more faithful, but it'll be smaller. I think. I think that's what you're going to see, especially in the West.
0: I I agree with that, but I, I would add one caveat to this idea that so many young seminarians in the American Church are now. Uh, very, very concerned with the issue of orthodoxy and remaining orthodox is that they really do, and and I know Roland would agree with this, they really do need education. They need to be led. They need to be taught because unless they are exposed to the to the Ratzinger's and De Lubach's and Danielou's and Peeper's and, and you know, and Balthazar's of the church. Most of them have never heard of these people. They've heard of Ratzinger, of course, because he was Pope. Uh, and instead they're, they're feeding off of certain internet voices from the far right, from the Catholic right who are arguing for simply a kind of return to Gary du Lagrange a return to the neo-scholastic sort of, form of forensic thinking that one saw in the pre-conciliar church. Uh, And this is not out of any ill will. It's out of a real sort of angst that they're feeling towards modernity and rejecting it. Uh, And it seems, though, that their only category that they can flock to is a sort of of return to a more integralist understanding. Uh, So that's the only caveat. I, I just think that it points to the importance of everything we've been talking to. Here today with regard to the thought of Ratzinger and how he listened and how important it is to be humble and how important it is to study and read widely and to and to be educated and not simply to fall into these camps, uh, these camps of thinking, you know. That, but that's my two cents on that dynamic of, of the young guys being more conservative.
1: Well, of course, I mean, to say um uh, Again, we're back to the ambiguity of, of our human condition. You know, there's yes, nothing perfect. Yes. And um, I, I, but I, I think that once people have got a, a taste for the truth, you know, yeah. and the great thing about Ratzinger, you see, is that uh, all you have are sketches, you know, and it's not easy to buttonhole, you know. So you have to search further and go on to people like, like Balthazar, who was much more comprehensive and much more and much deeper in many ways, you know? So I, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the Holy Spirit is at work as well. We shouldn't forget that, you know, yes, yes, and, yes. Uh, and, but one, the other thing I, I, I would um, uh, like to finish with, is that is the importance of recognizing the, uh, the um, true understanding of the authoritative teaching of the church. Yeah? I think one yeah, of the greatest yeah. gifts that Ratzinger and John Paul II gave to the Church is the calism of the Catholic Church. Yeah, and also, you know, we're going through a, a period of confusion at the moment because we're getting diff- getting different signals from from uh, from Rome. To put it bluntly, uh, confusing signals. Um, but the thing is that the Church is not the Pope. The church is not a theologian. that's right. We're talking yeah, about right. the whole apostolic authority of the church, and that, like everything, it can't be reduced to a simple, you know, formula. You know, people give out right. about the Vatican council, all this huge thick volume of uh, of documents. Yes, but we're in a new era in in in, in history. And we have to start, as Paul Sixth said, from the beginning. We have to try and work through these things for ourselves. Yeah?
0: Absolutely. And, and I think ambiguity. And, and,
1: and all, the only thing we can, we can trust is, what, is the, what does the church actually teach? Not what does Ratzinger teach or Balthazar or John Paul II. What actually is the church's teaching? And that is a challenge as well, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. and I think what the great thing about the present papacy is that it's, it's waking us up to that fact, that actually, oh, yeah. you know, the, the, the truth of the revealed truth granted to us by God for the salvation of all humanity yeah, is something that is given a gift. It is there. We have to search for it. We can never be quite sure if we have it. So that should keep us humble and searching. Absolutely. And yeah, to Larry's well,
2: point to, re- to read, to read and engage widely. I mean, to to go back yes. to scripture, yeah. to the fathers, read Saint Bonaventure and Aquinas, and. And,
1: and moderns and so forth. I mean, yeah, but but also to read beyond them, to read history and to read literature, yes, read and to, and to literature, and philosophy, and, uh, uh, yeah, above and all, uh, see, see what other people are are, are thinking. You know, and uh, also Ratzinger says, I think, in his debate with, with um, after his debate with with with, with Habermas, uh, you know, both the secularists and the Christians must listen to the other religions. Huh? Yes. What do they have to say? You know. And, and to not remember, to be afraid, not to be afraid
0: of the exactly. truth. Exactly.
1: Be not afraid. And
0: exactly. we need to remember, too, with regard to these, like the young seminarians, uh, is that they're young uh, and they need to be educated and formed. And young people are not always good at dealing with ambiguities and tend to think. And I, I remember myself, I mean, I went to seminary uh, in the 70s or late 70s, right after the whole post conciliar. Uh, Nonsense was going on. And so I had carved up the ecclesial world into good guys and bad guys. The bad guys were the liberals and the good guys were the conservatives. Uh And I got to seminary and realized this is actually not working for me intellectually. And my spiritual director and my viewers know this story, Father Anton Morgenroth, another Holy Ghost father who was a convert from Judaism, fled Hitler. He, he had known Balthazar, and he had listened to me in spiritual direction talk about, you know, my troubles, trying to adjudicate all of these uh, theological issues, and he, and he stood up, and he went to his, I was getting ready to leave, and he said, wait a minute, and he goes to his shelf, and he he grabs a copy of Balthazar's book, Love Alone, and he throws it at me, and I catch it, and he goes, here, read that, it will make you less stupid, and and. <laughs> <laughs> and I did read it. It was like trying to drink water from a fire hose for me as a young mind. But it was so explosive. It did make me less stupid. Um, and from that, then Morgan Roth took me by the hand and, and had me read Ratzinger, Daniel Lu, De Lubach, Congar, all of these, a peeper, and then Bernanos, Moriac, uh, literary figures. And, and so to me, the, the pedagogy that is implied there is that it's okay for a young person to start in in sort of a hardened position, a uh, very undeveloped, so long as they're open
2: to being pushed forward. Yeah, I and think. they and to that end, they need good guides, good mentors, yes. good teachers, good directors. You know,
1: of course, Absolutely. they need huge. Uh, um, but a, a Ratzinger's own th- pedagogical principle was you shouldn't, you should let the student discover the truth for himself or herself. Yeah, yep. Yes. Don't impose yeah. it. Yeah. You know? And what yeah, your organ did, he gave you a book, read that, you know, and a challenging book, you know. Yeah. yeah to, I, I mean, to your point earlier, to your narrative earlier, Father Vincent, it sounds
2: like that was the key difference between Rahner and Ratzinger. Rahner was kind of imposing, it sounds like. He didn't really. Listen to his students, whereas what Ratzinger did. I mean, is that a fair? You
1: know. Well, I I, I mean to say, I, I met Ron at the end of his life, you know, and he oh, was sure. already he he was you know uh, already a huge big figure, and people were actually you know treating him like little gods, you know. So you know, it, it was it wasn't his fault either, put it that way, you know. No. But but he also had this extra, a system. Ratzinger never had a school. He never had a system. You know, Rahner has it. He could put everything into that system. Um, Ratzinger never produced, uh, we never had to study anything. He asked us to study, you know, you, you did what you, what you wanted to do yourself. And um, so we had this spectrum of, of views in the colloquium and which was quite spectacular and so you had these huge discussions wonderful discussions you had to listen to the other person whether you liked it or not even though he came or she came from a different uh, uh, school of thought you know but i i, I do think that the um uh, the, the once a student has tasted uh, you know from the pure clean waters of truth you know yeah that absolutely. they actually then, they will then search
0: oh yeah and, 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 and it's interesting too i mean uh that uh after i read love alone by by balthazar my next spiritual direction with father morganroth who was an accomplished pianist as i came in and i sat down and he started to play mozart on the piano and he played from memory for half an hour and then he got done he goes there vi via finished same time next week And I said, Father, but what about spiritual direction? He goes, you idiot, that was spiritual direction. (laughs) Uh, But the point being, other than me airing my autobiography, is what your point earlier, Father, about the need to be exposed to music and literature and and all that is true and good and beautiful. And sport. Uh And sport, (laughs) absolutely.
2: (laughs)
1: Yeah.
2: In would, fact, it seems like that's what was just said about Ratzinger. What would, would distinguished him from the other professors that he takes time to play Mozart. He takes time to, to play the piano.
0: That's uh, true. Uh, that's true. And uh, something about Mozart, I guess. Uh, yes. Uh, and, and,
1: well, and, uh, as you as you know, it's been often quoted Cardinal Meister called him the, Ratzinger was the Mozart of, of theology. Yeah, the Mozart of theology. You
0: know, that's right. Absolutely. Mozart
1: wrote things from the head practically without. According without any, and Ratzinger just spoke his theology. he just came through. Uh, you 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 spoke at the, at the very beginning about. I asked me about him as a lecturer. You know his um, his lectures were quite extraordinary because uh, he only came in with a few a few notes and he would speak spontaneously for three quarters of an hour and then, the time was up, he'd stop and continue then the following week. You know. But um, his big book, Introduction to Christianity, uh, I was told by a former assistant of his, Peter Kuhn, who um, these were lectures given to the university, not the theology students, but to all the university. Now there were two theology faculties on the university. So it was a very theologically uh, um, educated university. Uh, But he, he came in with a few notes, and then he spoke for an hour or something. And uh, his assistant had one of these old um, uh, old recorders with spools, you know, and it took a recording, went home and typed out the, the lecture. And at the end of the semester, he gave the typed copy with big gaps in between, you know, big big space between the lines, for Ratzinger to make an occasional adjustment and put in the footnotes. <laughs> and that's a classic, you know. <laughs> And, yeah. you know, and he never finished it because when he comes towards the end, the Holy Spirit, he kind of skips through that because the time was up, you know. But yeah, um, yeah. he had the spontaneity. Uh, and the Germans would say, you know, after listening to him uh, respond to a question, oh, that could be printed as Druckreich. And that was, you know, his 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 genius, I would say, you know, quite extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah? It was yeah, a great sir. privilege a great privilege to know him and to sit, sit at his feet, yeah, and to know him for over fifty-one years, which is quite extraordinary.
2: Yeah. Now, Father Vincent, when's the last time you saw him? So, last September.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: Oh, fascinating. Yeah.
2: Just this. Yeah, I I, I,
1: I, I went to 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 um, give him a copy of my book of the liturgy, the dynamics of liturgy, uh, and um, we haven't there spoken about that yeah. at all, by the way, but. Um, unfortunately due to the post the copy never arrived but I saw him and I spent 50 minutes with him which was wonderful and um, I then tried to give him a, a taste of the contents of the book which are inspired by his theology and by my experience in Papua New Guinea in my study of ritual and um, I found him uh, you know quite I found him very as usual alert and listening yeah. He, he speaks He speaks with a whisper mostly. But actually, we had a fairly good conversation. And I could understand him better than the previous year when I also saw him, you know. But he is getting frailer. you know. Yeah,
0: well, uh, yes, as you uh, might imagine, 95, 96, what, what
1: is he? 95, named? 95. Uh, 95 years old. And, and, he, and he, he, he was never robust, you know. Like myself, he was hopeless at sport, but love watching it, you know. But well he had a he, stroke too, didn't he have a stroke? He had a stroke, he had. Yeah. And he's one eye, he's blind in one eye, I think, yeah. Oh, okay. So okay. Um, I did feel like that. So uh, so he's um but also he's serene, yeah. He was serene and very happy to enter into in, into dialogue, yeah.
0: Well, why don't we uh sort of end on that note, on, on the serenity of Pope Emeritus Benedict, one of the great towering figures uh, of our time, uh, certainly a hero, if you can use that word for saints, and I think he is a saint, a hero uh, of mine, and uh, as well as Wojtyla John Paul. Uh, and and I, I thank you so much, Father Vincent, for taking a good hour and 35 minutes to, uh, to be with us today, uh I, I you, thought, Father well, uh, thank, thank you. you so I was good. thinking, well, maybe yeah, since yeah. you said yesterday you weren't feeling well coming back from court, hopefully we can thank get you. 45 minutes at least going. And we we talked, I could talk for another three hours with you and listen to <laughs> you. It's an absolute privilege to hear you speak about uh, these people and their theology. And I, I I cannot thank you enough for coming on. Uh, and um,
1: well, you, and, you can thank Ronald because I didn't want to come on because he he more or less forced it, you know. Because yeah. you're such a big you're such a big figure, I was trembling in my boots, you know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm a big figure. You're a man who sat at the feet of Ronner and drove Balthazar around and I knew finger.
1: Yeah, but, you know, no, no, yeah. But, but lots, lots of people do that. You know, that's the, that's that's passive. That's purely passive. You know, I, I, I owe that's purely providential. I, I can lay no claim to that. Except I can only law. say that your book,
0: I loved it. Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, the 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 conscience of our age. I'll show it again once again. Highly recommend people uh, get it. I'm assuming it's still in print. Uh, from Ignatius Press, yes. and, and
2: and this one from Ignatius, and the Press, dynamics please.
0: of liturgy, Joseph the Ratzinger's of theology of liturgy and interpretation. Uh, and I know many people. Uh, one is Father Harrison Air, he's a priest in Canada who's working on Ratzinger's thought, who will probably be very interested in this conversation uh, after he listens to it. But so, th- thank you once again, and thank you, Roland. I know I did most of the questioning and stuff. I probably no, didn't give you. I, I- enough of a it shot was a, it
2: was a it was a privilege for me just to listen to father vincent i could listen to father vincent for hours and to you, larry, absolutely
0: but, absolutely uh, yeah. well thanks everyone for tuning in for for listening and uh once again a big a big thank you to father vincent tuomi for coming on today. Thank,
1: you. thank you larry thank you, yeah. Yes, well, you. all. The yeah i appreciate your stimulating conversation yeah.